you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and LAist.com, this is a special edition of Take Two. I'm Martinez. Austin Cross is going to join me as well. Earlier today, the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial for the killing of George Floyd found the former Minneapolis police officer guilty on all three counts that he was charged with. Second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. Chauvin was taken into custody right away, and he'll be sentenced in a few weeks. Now, the verdicts come less than a day after closing arguments wrapped following the three-week-long trial. The jury took less than 12 hours to reach their decision. Now Chauvin faces up to 75 years in prison. Well, for the next hour, we want to know how you're feeling about what happened today and how this verdict fits into the bigger picture of race, policing, justice, and equality in Los Angeles and the United States, for that matter. Give us a call, 866-893-5722. Again, that number is 866-893-5722. We would love to hear from you, and you can also tweet us at KPCC. Up first, though, we're going to check in with KPCC's criminal justice reporter, Frank Stoltz, who's at LAPD headquarters. Frank, you and uh, KPCC's Robert Garova have been in downtown L.A. this afternoon, and you talked to members of the clergy. What did they have to say? Well, uh, a, there was an overwhelming sense of relief, and that's a word we heard over and over again, relief. Uh, the justice system worked this time, said one person. Dr. Michael J. Fisher of Greater Zion Church in Compton talked about the videotape of Rodney King being beaten three decades ago. And he said the verdict shows this is a different era, uh, that you can get caught on tape and not get away with it anymore. Uh, He said many uh, in their congregations had a lot of anxiety before the verdict. uh, And while people were ready to hit the streets in protest, they didn't necessarily want to have to. Organizers talked about a protest outside this uh, LAPD headquarters, as I mentioned, but it didn't happen. Uh, They did hold a small one, I think you know this, outside the mayor's residence in Hancock Park, but it also was small. So uh, while we talk about relief um, and even uh, more hope out of this verdict that the justice system can work, um, people also said you should not be fooled by the verdict against Chauvin. Uh, There are many unjust beatings and killings of black men by police that go unpunished, they say, and that too often still cops act with impunity. And Frank, you've been reporting on this for years now, but the murder of George Floyd has really sparked conversations about reform and policing right here in L.A. And we're not just talking about uh, incremental steps, but big fundamental changes. Tell us more about that. You know, we have to go back to, you know, uh, when George Floyd was killed, um, it's been an extraordinary year of protests, you know, beginning with, with those few days directly after the killing. Um, and, and, and these protests have had a huge impact on police reform. Uh, even before the protests had ended, you'll remember the city defunded the LAPD by $150 million, something that would have been unheard of, you know, just days earlier. Uh, later in the year, we saw Measure J passed. Uh, voters said that more money should go to social programs and to keep people uh, out of uh, uh, prisons, you know, rehabilitation programs and such, reentry programs. Um, so it went beyond policing. It wasn't just about changing policing. It was about a broader justice movement. I got to say, uh, uh, A, that, that the movement, you know, was well underway before George Floyd. Um, you know, we have to pay our respects to the many organizations that we're doing a lot of heavy lifting, organizing, you know, long before uh, last year. Uh, but but George Floyd really put the put the fuel to the fire. Um, and, you know, uh, we've seen a lot of different other More changes, time. including the city looking at a pilot program uh, to uh, allow traffic officers to stop 
people in their cars rather than police. Uh, and then just last week uh, at the Civilian Oversight Commission for the sheriff, uh, there was talk of expanding uh, the number of, of mental health teams that respond to incidents. Um, but there was sentiment on the commission that even the expansion of those is not the right next move, that the right next move is to only have mental health workers respond to somebody who's in distress uh, where normally police would. So that tells you sort of how far uh, things have come. One more thing, uh, Frank, uh, District Attorney George Gascon, the new DA, um, what does this verdict, you think, do to his promise to prosecute more police officers? You know, it's hard to tell. Uh, the DA has promised to prosecute more police officers. In fact, he said he's reviewing more than 600 police shootings dating back to 2012. Uh, you, know, you know, one of them we could consider is the Brendan Glenn shooting. He was 25 years old, unarmed, homeless black man, fatally shot by an LAPD officer in Venice in 2015. You can see video of this happening. The police chief even recommended charges against the officer in this case. Uh, so there's a, there's a case where, you know, it, you could easily see the DA deciding uh, to move forward with the prosecution, where certainly the previous DA was unwilling to. And I think you're right that, that, that DA Gascon uh, may have a little more political latitude to go forward with that kind of prosecution. Latitude, but do you think he'll have more space? In other words, get uh, more of what he wants done maybe quicker because of this verdict? Um, I, I think uh, he's still I, I, he's already got a pretty ambitious reform yeah. program and uh, and he's and he continues to get a lot of blowback from law enforcement. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because, eh, you know, I, I think we can safely say just about everybody was on the same page about the George Floyd killing. I had you know, I, I picked up on social media a few officers out there you know, who were defending Chauvin, but it was, there weren't that many. Um, so, you know, uh, you take, you take a case like the one I just mentioned and it's going to be much more controversial. You know, it's not yeah. it's less clear cut for a lot of people. So, um, it'd be interesting to see how, how the DA handles it. All right. That's KPCC's criminal justice reporter, Frank Stoltz. Frank, thanks a lot. Thank you. Don't forget, uh, we want to hear from you as well. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. And you can always uh, find us on our Twitter. That's at KPCC. That's at KPCC. With today's guilty verdicts in Minnesota, many people might be wondering what's next right now, not just for Derek Chauvin, but for the nation. So let's get some thoughts on both from Jody Armour. He is the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at USC. Jody, thank you so much for making the time. Very good to be with you. I just want to start by asking your reaction to the three guilty verdicts delivered today in the Derek Chauvin trial. What do you feel? I right think now? it's very telling that we feel such collective relief right now. So many people I talked to said uh, talked about how much anxiety they felt today uh, leading up to the verdict and how much anxiety they've been feeling since the closing argument. And I think that we could the fact that we could be this anxious about a case that seemed like a clear cut case that, you know, open and shut, you know, nine minutes and 29 seconds that shocked the conscience of a nation and really the world, um, you would think that would be a slam dunk case. But many people were worried that it wouldn't be, that they, they worried that, you know, Rodney King in 91, we had a videotape of four officers pummeling him repeatedly. People thought that that would, of course, result in a verdict of guilty. And the Simi Valley jury acquitted all four officers and said, don't believe your lying eyes. So there was the fact that we feel so relieved right now, I think, is an indictment of our business as usual when it comes to criminal justice in this country. I mean, do you get the sense, Jody, that people, especially in communities of color, did not really expect to see true justice in this case. That, that seems to be what's behind the relief, at least from how I see it. Oh, yeah. A lot of the relief is, you know, uh, uh, Black America has been gaslighted so much, right? Told that in the first Rodney King trial, not to believe your lying eyes. Told that 
and Walter Scott. You remember uh, who was running away from the police officer who and was shot six times in the back. There was a videotape of that. And the first jury trial, deadlock, right? He ultimately um, accepted a plea deal. But, the, but despite that, ev- that videotape evidence, there was a deadlock jury. So, um, you know, you could say the same with the Philando Castillo case. You could say the same with a, a lot of other cases that, have made a lot of black Americans skeptical about whether you could go to the criminal justice system in America and get impartial, unbiased justice. And I don't know that this proves that you can. The bar is mighty low in this case. To get this kind of justice, do you have to have a nine-minute and, nine and 29-second tape? And, you know, do you have to have, you know, the mountain of evidence that you had here to be taken seriously? If, that is, if that's the case, then this really doesn't represent as much of a triumph as it might initially seem to. I am wondering, is this a testament to the, the gravity and the breadth of evidence that people of color need in order to get justice in America? That's the scary part, right? If this is the bar, if you know, if you have to clear this bar, that, that, that's a, a bar that is um, uh, unrealistically high if we're talking about equal justice for all. But I think that is certainly the sense among uh, a lot of, uh, of black Americans, which is, I think, what may, what, what um, this trial sparked more, more than anything else. And George Floyd's tragic death sparked uh, was our, our collective reckoning with this issue of racial justice in a way we haven't before um, in my lifetime. You know, as, as a nation, we have looked hard, long and hard over the summer we started talking about things like systemic racism. I started hearing people use that word and phrase that I hadn't heard using it before. And we started saying, you know, you have to unbundle the police. You have to tra- go move towards transformational justice. You know, this, this moment that we're in is the product of all that grassroots activism in the street. Remember, um, they, they was, it, was, it was riots in Minneapolis that led to the indictment of Derek Chauvin in the first place. There was not an immediate arrest or indictment. We're know? talking right now with Jody Armour. Jody, please stay with me. We're going to have to take a quick break right now. But Jody Armour is the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at USC. He's going to be with us right after a quick break. And hey, just a reminder, we want to hear from you and your reaction on today's verdict. Please give us a call. 866-893-5722. Again, that's 866-893-5722. Or tweet us at KP. We will be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Elias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Cross with A. Martinez, and you are listening to a live special from KPCC and LAist on the Derek Chauvin verdict. And we want to hear from you and your reaction to today's verdict. Give us a call, 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. My guest right now is Jody Armour, and he is the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at USC. Jody, thank you so much for staying with us here. Great to be with you. Well, Jody, over the years, even going back to 1991 when Rodney King was beaten, as you mentioned earlier, we can point to several instances of black Americans being subject to extremely harsh treatment at the hands of law enforcement. And we've seen several uprisings as a result of that treatment getting caught on video. But in the case of George Floyd, though, Jody, it felt a little different from the start. I'm not sure if it's the same for you, but why do you think that is? Yeah, there's it, it, it was there was something really gripping 
about one, for one thing, this street level journalist, this, this, uh, you know, this young girl who videotaped all of this, that, you know, um, who was brave enough to capture this footage uh, that we saw that nine minutes and 29 seconds. It wasn't the police body cam that gave us this footage, right? It was the, it was it was her her you know bravery in the face of you know officers telling her, shouting at her, and a lot of other things. And then the intimacy of George Floyd crying out for his mother, mm. you know, um, you know, soiling himself, um, you know, the the difficulty he had when they were trying to put him in that small locked space in the, in the back of that car, any of us who've had any kind of anxiety disorders, many of us have those, um, have uh, experienced panic attacks, can imagine, you know, the kind of overwhelming panic he felt and recognized his, him as in distress. And yet his distress was ignored. Um, and so, you know, it, it was really a graphic illustration of, how sometimes black pain cannot generate a lot of sympathy in or empathy in officers who are interacting with citizens who are accused of what in this case, allegedly a $20 counterfeit bill, you know, and that's still allegedly because that hasn't been confirmed. You know, I would hope that if I passed a $20 bill that a clerk thought was might be counterfeit, that the first I heard about it wouldn't be an officer pointing a gun at my head in the driver's side of my seat and saying, I have a bill here that may be counterfeit, but that's what George Floyd encountered, right? So, yeah, it's been very sobering, I think, for lots of people because of its intimacy. You know, you could connect that nine minutes and 29 seconds. And, you know, it was interesting that the defense even, you would think they, he would have, the defense would go away from that video. The defense went toward it. And rolled, rolled Judah wise with it, I think, and said, let me try to show it frame by frame and desensitize the jury. You might think that that was irrational, but you know that strategy worked in the Rodney King case. In the first case, the, the defense went frame by frame, blow by blow, baton by baton blow to, with the Simi Valley jury until it didn't look like such a bad beating to a lot of jurors. Right. So that strategy sometimes worked. It worked. It did not work in this case, though. I'm talking right now to Jody Armour. He is the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at USC. And we have a few calls right now. And I want to get to Andrea in Woodland Hills. Andrea, thank you so much for coming on. And please tell us what you're thinking right now. Yeah. So um, with everything that's going on, uh, I think that there's more coverage from a um, agencies and how the legal system works, but I think it's really important that we take a step back and kind of look at it from a, a bigger a bigger perspective. Um, when it comes to implicit biases, I think that that plays a huge role in, in a lot of racism and a lot of what we're seeing happening today. So I think it's really important to consider how these implicit stereotypes and biases come about. It's really through our associations and they're learned. And so that's a much bigger problem. It doesn't have a price tag. And I think it's just as important as all of as all of the other factors that are being discussed. Definitely, Andre. It's certainly almost woven into uh, the fabric in America. Jody Armour at uh, the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at USC. What do you think? Uh, Andre hit the nail squarely. Couldn't hit it any more squarely. That's what the activists were saying in the street. That you know we have deeply embedded implicit biases in us. Some of my early scholarship was about that. I was hopeful when I first ran into this because I said, oh, once we acknowledge our unconscious implicit biases, we can control them. We can self-regulate them. What we're finding in more and more studies is no, we can't. Yes, they're there, these unconscious biases, but there's very little we can do to control them. So if you want to minimize harm to members of stereotype groups uh, from unconscious biases and stereotypes, you have to minimize the contact between for example, police officers who have these implicit biases and members of the black community against whom these implicit biases are directed. That, in other words, unbundle the police. That's what the activists are saying. Why are police involved in tra so many traffic stops, right? Just 10 miles away from uh, the Derek Chauvin trial, you had Dante Wright killed over a traffic mm -hmm. stop, you know, which reminds you of others killed over traffic stops like Philando Castile and 
and Sam DeBose. And you ask, why are officers in that business? Why are they pulling him over for an air freshener on his rearview mirror or even expired tags? You know, why, why is that a necessary interaction between police officers who are our violence workers? After all, that's their official role. We give them a Glock with live ammunition, a stun gun, a billy club, mace, and handcuffs their violence workers. Why aren't we trying to minimize the contact between these violence workers and members of stereotype groups who will suffer from stereotypes? We're talking with Jody Armour over at USC, and I want to get another call in here. Jasmine in West Hollywood, thank you for coming on and tell us what you're thinking this evening. Hi. Um, I have three different things to say with that. Um, my aunt and uncle, they're both police officers of 30 years and when Shelvin happened um, I she and her and a whole bunch of other people in my area in the conservative place upstate New York they all said that they had our support the Black Lives Matter support like they all supported it until everybody started riding in the streets and but if nobody would have rioted in the streets then it wouldn't have never happened there wouldn't have even been um, like an arrest so and then afterwards, after he knelt on his neck, I just keep thinking about how everyone, um, like how all the police officers then went around his house to protect him and his house. And I don't think it was like protecting him as like another citizen. I believe that it was protecting him as another police officer and we stand by our police officer. So it took, I know that like at the time they said, oh, we are, every cop in America is against what Chauvin did. And yet we still support people not protesting in the streets and we still support um other police officers protecting him in his home and then the third thing is is that i know that we're talking about um the verdict but at the same time as the verdict was being read today a 15 year old girl mckayah bryant was shot and killed by a police officer after calling the police um requesting help because she was at that time being assaulted she did have a knife in her hand but she was calling the police for protection and the police officer instead killed her right at the same time as the Derek, um, as the Chauvin case was being read its verdict. And I didn't see a lot of, it just happened, but there's a lot of people on the streets right now in Ohio that's protesting because of it. But that's all I have to say. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Jasmine. And yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot uh, to this and there's nothing about it that is simple and not only when it comes to the reasons why people end up going out on the street but you know I'll also say that you know racism didn't end today it's very important to keep that one in mind and you know just because there happens to be something that a large community of people are very very you know happy with today after a very long time of no justice uh, the world is still spinning, and yeah, there's there's still a lot of very bad things that are happening currently. Uh, I'm going to have to wrap up with you right now, Jody Armour, but thank you so much for coming on. That was Jody Armour, the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at USC, and I'm going to hand it back over to A. Martinez. But before I do, this is Austin Cross, and you are listening to a special live coverage from KPCC and LAist on the Derek Chauvin verdict, and we want to hear more thoughts from you. Give us a call, 866-893-5722. Again, that number is 866-893-5722. You can also tweet us at KPCC. And we're joined now by Marquise, Marquise Harris-Dawson, Los Angeles City Council member representing the 8th District. That uh, is parts of South L.A. and also parts of uh, Baldwin Hills all the way to the border of Watts. Uh, Council member Harris-Dawson, uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on KPCC. Good evening. Uh, before we get to what this verdict means for the community you represent, I want to know you. Uh, you. What did you think? What did you feel when you heard this verdict? Uh, you know, there was a, a very, very mild sense of relief uh, and sort of an, a half second to exhale. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you, you quickly have to fight back against the, the very deep feelings of despair. Uh, when you say and you look at this is what had to happen for a guilty verdict to happen. There had to be an incontrovertible, indisputable evidence on a perfectly shot video. Uh, in order for that to happen. And, you know, while he's on trial, uh, while Chauvin's on trial, there are uh, at least four, by my count, uh, people killed by, black people killed by police in traffic stops. Uh, so, you know, that, it's kind of a mix 
of uh, a, a mix of very intense emotions. How much of that, of what you felt, is reflective, you think, of the rest of the black community in America today? Well, you know, I think I think it uh, I think that's a, it's a common experience in black Amer- in black America. I mean, I, again, this is hardly scientific uh, and barely anecdotal, but I didn't talk to a single black person who thought there was going to be a guilty verdict before this. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't find one who thought there was going to be a guilty verdict. And so I think you were that sure. Was, you, I mean, I just I, I didn't think there would be a guilty verdict. And I certainly didn't think there would be guilt on three counts. And I never encountered a black person who felt that there would be. So I think the sense of, of again, mild relief was widespread. So it's just because of the video, the overwhelming evidence, as, as the prosecutor said, believe our eyes. That That is what it takes in America in 2021 still. Yeah, I mean, that, apparently. I mean, that's, that's, you know, like the prosecutor said, believe your eyes. Like, this, is, this is what you see. Um, and in all these other cases that, you know, and there will be more cases, uh, you know, we'll see if the justice system learns from this incident. You mentioned, Councilman, that for a second, you gave yourself that one bit of second to, to, to just kind of think about what happened, and then your mind went back to despair. But for the people out there that view this as hope, uh, do you share any of that same feeling? Well, you know, I share, I, I have uh, intense hope. Uh, and I think, you know, these types of events are catalysts for uh, great social change. Uh, if you think about the, you know, the Emmett Till case, the Emmett Till case laid the basis for the civil rights movement. Uh, if you think about Trayvon Martin, Trayvon Martin is really, the Trayvon Martin case, the George Zimmerman verdict is what really gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. It is the Black Lives Matter movement, frankly, that was positioned uh, to bring attention to the issue when George Floyd died. There was something for people to turn to and someone to put out uh, put out a set of demands. And so, I, you know, I think this can absolutely be one of those moments where there is before this and after this. We're joined by Marquise Harris Dawson, LA City Council member representing the sixth, the eighth district, excuse me, of uh, Los Angeles. Let's uh, take a call. Let's go out to Ruth in West LA. Ruth, you're on KPCC. Yes. Hi. Can you hear me? I got gotcha. you. Loud and clear. Okay. Fine. So I'm a cardiologist, and I was really incensed when the um, uh, Minnesota uh, or the Minneapolis uh, medical examiner came out with, of course, the, blame, the usual blame the victim thing about fentanyl. We use fentanyl in the cath lab to put people to sleep. So it was really, really an egregious, you know, um, breach of medical ethics for him to come out and say that it was, you know, caused by fentanyl. Clearly, um, George Floyd was not groggy. He wasn't asleep or anything like that. So um, I'm just glad that that finally came out in the trial. And that's, you know, basically what I wanted to say. Thank you. All right. Thanks, uh, Ruth in West L.A. for the phone call. Uh, Councilman, when you think about the defense and some of the things that were mentioned, is is that something that that you took personally in any way? Is that just a defense attorney doing what a defense attorney does? I mean, I, I think on the one hand, it's a defense attorney doing what a, a defense attorney does, but it is very hard to watch when the person who's dead is being put on trial for being dead. Uh, that You know, that's just, uh, it, you know, it's almost like saying, uh, you know, uh, a person got raped because of the outfit that they wore or because of the way they walked or, you know, because of the eye contact that they gave the rapist, the, you know, the focus really has to be on the event and the perpetrator. Uh, and I think it's, it's very incensing when, when again, someone who's been killed is put on trial for being killed. In a way though, councilman, when you consider the history of race in America, I mean, a black man would be killed for what, he's wearing right the color of his skin sure sure no i think that's i think that's absolutely right and you and that trial never happens and and frankly even in this trial uh i i understand the prosecution doing what they needed to do to 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 get a conviction but this trial never actually dealt with the fact that this doesn't happen to george floyd if he's not black 
So how do we deal with that going forward? Well, you know, I think you can only deal with those issues in the streets. Only Social movements have been the only way this country has really dealt with race in any serious way. Uh, and I think we're, you know, we're in a social movement at this moment that's taking a real hard look at policing and looking at the relationship between policing and white supremacy. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it has had several episodes, but none bigger than uh, the George Floyd killing and the George Floyd trial. So then on that, on policing, specifically for us here in Los Angeles and in your district, District 8, what kind of conversations are you going to have going forward tomorrow, uh, next week, next month, and in the coming year about how policing in Los Angeles could change or be impacted by today's verdict? Well, you know, I think this is an opportunity for us to take a hard look at and end traffic stop by armed government workers. Uh, there's no reason to take the risk that is taken every time a government worker armed with a deadly weapon makes a traffic stop for a non-serious infraction or violation, a broken taillight, uh, uh, t- window tents too dark, uh, the you know broken uh, tail light, uh, even a rolling stop through a stop sign. We need to have another way of managing traffic safety. Uh, we frankly don't get. We take tremendous risks because people get killed on traffic stops, and we frankly don't get that much traffic and and, and pedestrian safety uh, as a result. So I think you know this is an opportunity to take a hard look at that. And I think Los Angeles ought to be the first big city to do that. Let's squeeze in Evelyn from Culver City. Evelyn, you're on 89.3 KPCC. Uh, Thank you for having me. Um, My personal view of this uh, verdict is a pacifier. Um, And to show proof of that, uh, from what I've heard, there have been three or four other murders of black people during and since this trial and even during the verdict. I don't know the exact timing of the other murders. But I feel this is just a pacifier. The summer's coming. They didn't want these riots. And I think there is possibly some justification um, coming to the decision. But black America especially has to understand how white America views them. Black Americans are viewed as subhuman. And this stems and comes out of slavery. Uh, We have to remember that they were a little bit above chattel, um, labor, specifically for the benefit of whites. And they are no better off than a mule. And that has been the perpetuating concept in white America's mind. This is why there's the comfort zone of not stealing anything when a black man or a woman is murdered. I, from what I understand, when police officers are trained, they are trained to shoot at black targets, formed bodies. They are psychologically, emotionally um, indoctrinated that black people are inferior. And, and, and this word nigger, what, what does that mean? The, the synonymous the, it's synonymous with inferiority. It's, it, it's synonymous with devaluation. So how do, and, and I think we're looking at this whole issue from a very superficial perspective, because until you can really, um, it's not so much train, but to bring white America into the enlightenment that they are not superior they're not any better, and they are not dealing with a subhuman group of people. <clears throat> they die just like everybody right. else. But my thing is that black America has to stop graveling at the feet of white America to change their condition. They're going to have to change it. And it's not so much white supremacy. It's legislative. Oh, Evelyn. Evelyn, thank you very much for the phone call. One more thing for you, Council Member, really quick. Um, Tonight and tomorrow and also in the coming uh, weeks, months, and years, um, we all have to work with police in our communities. Police, I I don't imagine, are going away anytime soon. So how do we go forward now from here when some police departments might feel like uh, they are targets now? 
Well, you know, I, I think all I encourage everybody to deal with people as individuals. Um, you know, it's certainly something I had to learn, uh, you know, becoming a council member. I was not accustomed to dealing with police officers. I avoided dealing with police officers. And, um, you know, as a council member, you do, and you find police officers like other people. They're not all the same. They're not a monolith. They're, you know, some that you can work with really well and others that you're going to struggle with. The problem isn't the individuals. The problem is the system. Uh, and so you've got to continually work to, to change the system. Something I really appreciated that the caller pointed out is that court cases do not create social change. Even Brown versus the Board of Education didn't end school desegregation. We had to have the bus stop movement here in Los Angeles, and there was the movement in Boston to integrate schools and the movement in Atlanta to integrate schools. And communities still struggle with making sure everybody gets equal education according to race. It, you know, Rodriguez uh, versus uh, California uh, is a big part of our history. And so these court cases are important flashpoints, but the fight is in the streets. And people who believe in justice, freedom, and equality can have to continually push on these systems to change them and uh, make them in the image uh, that we all deserve. That's uh, L.A. City Councilmember Marquise Harris-Dawson. Councilmember, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. We still want to take uh, your thoughts, 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. This KPCC at LA Especially Martinez alongside Austin Cross continues in just a few minutes. Stay with us. How do LA is your connection to Los Angeles? Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back out here on 89.3 KPCC. It's our special reacting to the Derek Chauvin verdict. Hey, Martinez, alongside Austin Cross. Uh, we're going to keep taking your phone calls at 866-893-5722. Uh, earlier this week, we asked listeners to send us their reactions about watching the Derek Chauvin trial. And this message is from listener Margot Howlett. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear that reaction. I'm following the trial because... Three years ago, my nephew was thrown to the ground, roughed up badly, had knees in his back, and this was over in Hawthorne, and it just brought back so many memories. It's been going on way too long. How many more people have to die? I don't want to watch it, but I have to watch it. And if he gets out with 5, 10, 15 years, and people are in the streets, and they have their signs, I will be out there. I'm 67 years old. I will be out there with my sign because enough is enough. We're joined now by uh, Margo. Margo, how are you feeling uh, right now? Hi, A. I feel relieved, but I, I'm still feeling, I'm feeling uneasy also because I agree with the councilman. We have to stay in the streets because this is what, today was one wonderful victory, but it was just one victory. And then tomorrow, somebody else's nephew will have knees in their back. Somebody else's son will be pulled over for whatever. And we may, I'm sure, there's, who's next? there's going to be a next and I I just I'm just not happy with that but I'm very pleased with today all three counts justice was served but I'm very weary and um wondering about right. tomorrow somebody else will cry tomorrow and that's the big part of this too right Margo it's the momentum is to keep the stamina going 
We have to. We have to. One person gets tired, the person next to them has to be have enough strength to keep going. And if enough of us take to the streets, if enough of us write, if enough of us stay, as uh, Maxine Waters says, awoke, stay woke, then things are going to happen. I had a conversation with Nayala Amaru, who is a political strategist, and she says that we have to celebrate the small things that happen in the on the political scene because they they move things happen but it moves very very slowly and i have to keep telling myself that because i i was almost out of patience with this whole thing i really i just wanted to get a rock or a brick or something i just thought oh, this something has to happen here so. Okay. Well, you can at least relax for one night, Margo. Thank you uh, very much for the phone call. That's uh, Margo Howlett. Um, that's uh, Margo Howlett uh, telling us about her reaction to the to the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Well, really powerful stuff. And we want to hear your thoughts too. 866-893-5722. Again, that's 866-893-5722 or tweet us at KPCC. Well, across the country tonight, people are celebrating the day's verdicts. And yeah, it's a major step toward accountability after many, many, many years of injustice. And yet, not far from the minds of most people is a sad reality. And that's a family is still in mourning. Children lost their father. George Floyd is still dead. Joy with a side of grief. What are we to make of it? Let's get some thoughts from Reverend Najuma Smith-Pollard from USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Najuma, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for having me. Good to be here with you all. You know, Najuma, to say that it has been a hard year would be an understatement, of course, because not only did Black America have to live with the trauma of seeing George Floyd's death on repeat, they also had to watch as the former president and his cheerleaders raised doubt about the cause of their grief and trauma. I'm wondering for you, what has it been like leading a faith community when so many other faith communities in the country chose to ignore Black grief? Yeah, I mean, it's it's disheartening to say the least, right? Like there's so many adjectives that describe that feeling of, uh, you know, being disheartened, of abandonment to a degree. Um, at the same time, recognizing we cannot stop here. We, 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 it's like, you know, you have, it's, it's really an uphill battle. It's swimming against the waves, all of that, um, because you know that, regardless of what's coming out of or what was coming out of the White House during this, this season, um, it, was not, it was not good. It was not good at all, but it could not be the end of us. It could not be the completion of our story nor our struggle. And um, you have to keep working. And so leading through this time, you know, meant digging deep within self, and I think for a lot of people in this last year, it was a lot of digging deep with itself and pulling out what you needed to keep going. You know, Najuma, I know for so long within the black community, religion has played so many roles in people's lives. And it's especially been a way for people to cope when there are several societal factors that are stacked against them and they really don't have any other power but to kind of give their faith to a higher power. What role do you think that faith has played for people in the black community in your community that, that you serve uh, during this past year? Yeah. So faith, you know, faith is, is, is the foundation for a lot of people. And so it, and that, and that's that digging down deep with this, right? Because our faith resides in us and, um, and we, and people had to really lack of a better term, hunker down in their faith and really figure out what do I really believe and how does that come alive in this moment? And so as a pastor, not only do I believe God is on the side of the oppressed, not only do I believe that God worked with Moses, not with Pharaoh, but then I had to put that in action. And that's what this moment did for millions of people across this globe, as we saw um, following the George, you know, when George Floyd was killed, which, which was not just about him being killed. It was, it was the buildup of other like murders um, that people just said, wait a minute. And then whatever 
a person's faith tradition was, they had to pull from that to decide, I'm going to protest, or I'm going to march, or I'm going to organize, I'm going to give, I'm going to be out front. Mm. And that is what got us to today, is that people digging down deep within themselves and deciding this cannot be our normal. There's certainly a change in how people approach at this time. I'm talking right now with Reverend Najuma Smith-Pollard from USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture, and we'd love to hear from you, too. Give us a call, 866-893-5722. Again, that number is 866-893-5722. We have a call right now from Byron. Byron, you are on the air with us here on KPCC. Really briefly, what are you thinking right now? Hi. Uh, Thank you for having me on the air. Um, I'm very pleased with your show and for bringing on intelligent uh, guests. And I'm just actually shocked today. And I wanted to just let all the bold jurors know that they voted their conscience in good conscience and that the decision to convict this policeman for this heinous act of incivility was beyond boldness. And they saw all the witnesses and they heard all the testimonies of the, the expert witnesses and they decided that this was a good decision to put this guy away for many years. Um, so I'm so sorry for George Floyd's family for the grieving, and um, no one should have to go through any of the abuse at all, ever. And the inhumane treatment towards George Floyd was despicable. And so um, basically, um, I think John F. Kennedy said this, one person can make a difference, and we should all try. And also, in the ripple of hope, it says, when one strikes out against injustice, you send a ripple of hope. So um, I appreciate everyone for banding together for America and the um, power to the people and knowledge is power. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Byron. And I'm also joined right now by Reverend Najuma Smith-Pollard from USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. I'm about to hand it back over to E. Martinez, but you are listening to a special live coverage here on KPCC and LAS on the Derek Chauvin verdict. And we want to hear from you, 866-893-5722. Again, that number is 866-893-5722. You can also tweet us at KPCC. And earlier today, KPCC News talked with Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter LA. She says she was relieved by today's verdict and allowed herself to feel a moment of joy. To feel a sense of satisfaction that the organizing work we've been doing for the last year in the name of George Floyd is bearing fruit and that there's some semblance of justice in his name. And when it comes to how law enforcement uh, treat people of color in America, Abdullah warns that some will try to portray former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin as just one of a small group of bad apples, but that's not how she sees it. We say that bad apple comes from a rotten tree that comes from a rotten orchard. And so the entire system of policing has to be transformed. The entire system of public safety has to be fundamentally transformed. We spoke with Abdullah from a protest held earlier outside the home of L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. Black Lives Matter L.A. holds a regular demonstration there calling for the city to change policing in Los Angeles, including defunding the LAPD. And we know the mayor last night when he gave his state of the city address said, if you're here to abolish the police, you've come to the wrong mayor. Well, we're saying, yes, indeed, he is the wrong mayor, but we're going to come to his home nonetheless. And we're going to say we want our tax dollars to go to the things that actually create safe communities like housing, like good jobs. And we don't want to continue to spend more than 50 percent of our city's general fund on LAPD. Abdullah pledged that organizers would continue to pressure Garcetti for what they characterize as bending to the will of the L.A. Police Protective League and enabling corrupt and violent cops. LAPD is responsible for the theft of Waukesha Wilson's life, Riddell Jones, Kenny Watkins, Eric Rivera. Um, We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the murder of Daniel Hernandez. Um, And so we're saying that the entire system of policing is problematic, is fundamentally flawed, and we think that people continue to see it because even as we were struggling for justice in the name of George Floyd, we know there are many more Derek Chauvin's that have to be held accountable, and there's, there's an entire system that has to be upended. And we did reach out to the L.A. Police Protective League and have not heard a response. Uh, let's go out to uh, Billy Mission Viejo. Billy, you're on 89.3 KPCC. Uh, th- Hello. Hi. I just wanted to say that um, 
I kind of want to just suppose what happened here with uh, what happened with Rodney King. I was in my 20s, and I just can't believe that it took 30 years. You know, and back then, uh, all four of the officers were acquitted. I, I just can't believe it took 30 years for us to kind of finally have a very symbolic um, conviction. And I think this conviction was just. I just was shocked at how long it took. Billy, what do you think it was about this particular case that got the conviction? I, I think, well, for one thing, uh, Rodney King didn't die. Maybe if he died, maybe something else would have happened. But also, I think it was the fact that um, we just saw so much uh, building a buildup to uh, that moment. I don't think George Floyd was, you know, I think it was the straw that broke the camel's back finally for an entire nation, an entire world. So I felt like, I felt like it had, it wasn't Floyd specifically, but it was all these incidents that just kept happening, kept happening. And they're just like, okay, you know what? We've had enough. This country has had enough. Um, and, and people kind of woke up. What a thing though, Billy, to wrap you know your head around is that it took maybe someone to die for something like this to happen. It, it did, and it, it had to be caught on video, right? Because we yeah. have, let's not forget that if, the, if video footage wasn't there, uh, I'm not sure that conviction would have happened. So, let's, uh, uh, Billy, thanks for the phone call. Let's squeeze in quickly uh, Serena from downtown LA. Serena, go ahead. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to share my feelings after the verdict. Re- really quick, Serena, really quick. I'm, yeah, it, I'm just a little tired. Uh, and I realized this. After I let out that sigh of just a small relief, like the council member said earlier, but really the exhaustion just is kind of washing over right now. And it's a good reminder to take a break. And I don't know who else needs to hear it, but let yourself take that break now. All right, uh, Serena, thank you very much for the phone call. This has been a special from 89.3 KPCC in LS. A. Martinez and Austin Cross. Take two is on tomorrow at 2. Air talk tomorrow at 10. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.